0: It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne, a better way of seeing the life that you want to live.
1: Welcome back. And if you've never joined us before, welcome for the first time. I'm glad you're with us. Today we're going to talk about life with an invisible illness. And you know, when people meet me, I tend to get Two incredulous reactions. Well, maybe three, and one has to do with being a pirate, but uh, that's another conversation. So, when people find out I'm a skydiver, they usually blurt, Why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And I've got two answers for that. One, there are no perfectly good airplanes, and two, why not? More seriously, when people find out I have multiple sclerosis, they tend to blurt, You don't look sick, and that's where we get to the challenge that many of us living with a largely invisible illness face. That observation, you don't look sick, is something that many of us find offensive, and we'll get into that in, in a little bit. And, and so, for many of us, it provokes a, a kind of a snarky response. You don't look stupid. Seems like the looks could be deceiving. So here we are. Or, are you a physician? Because my physician disagrees. Or, thanks, I'm planning an open casket funeral. <laughs> or, thanks, I'd rather look worse and feel better. There are a zillion forms of creative snark surrounding this. But on the other hand, when someone says that, the comment expresses real surprise and often admiration. Many people think this is a compliment. But it's also often a little bit incredulous. They can't quite believe that we're sick. And we'll get into that belief issue as we go along. But some of us rightly feel that this response from others is offensive. And I want us to explore why and try to figure out the dynamics of what's going on, because it's right at the center of a lot of the challenges we face when we live with an invisible illness. You have to remember, in the United States, about half of us live with a chronic health diagnosis. 18% of us, one in five, have five or more of these diagnoses. 96% of all of us living with chronic health conditions are largely or completely invisible. There's no external signal that is commonly associated with being sick. I'm using my air quote fingers here. And 10% of us have an invisible disability. In other words, that health condition is so serious that it gets enough in the way of our lives that we get the mostly legal, not medical, designation of disabled. And we're going to have a whole episode about this coming up that's a bunch of us. So on the one hand, when someone says, I've got X, Y, or Z, a serious chronic illness that is not going away, most of us shouldn't be surprised. And yet we are. And there's another issue that's hiding in this response. And that's what I'll call the privilege of diagnosis. And again, this is going to be another episode because it's a really big deal, and it especially affects women and people of color who live with chronic illnesses. We all know that there is, in our culture, this largely unspoken hierarchy of diagnoses. Some diagnoses we take more seriously than others. Even though they don't deserve to be taken any less seriously than the others, we still do. So we get something like chronic fatigue syndrome, where the medical community is still trying to figure out exactly what this is, and and it is now more correctly known as myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, CFIDS. So there's other names for it that are more correct. But A lot of people, especially in the general population, don't quite understand this. And because they don't understand it, they don't necessarily believe that it's a serious condition. And believe me, it is. This is similar to, say, my own diagnosis of multiple sclerosis in the 1950s. In the 1950s, someone who had MS, well, first, it was largely ignored in men and explained away, and with women who were overwhelmingly those that were considered for this diagnosis, it was diagnosed as hysteria. Now, obviously, times have changed a bit, and we take it more seriously, and part of that is because we have medical imaging that now allows us to see, for example, that if you look at an MRI of my central nervous system, it looks like a freaking Christmas tree. Because there are all these bright spots in there that are identifying the damage that has gone on. So there is this sort of hierarchy to how much belief and how much consideration we give people based on the diagnoses that they're living with. But think about this. Heart disease, cancers, arthritis, diabetes, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, mental illnesses, autoimmune conditions, neurodegenerative conditions, etc., cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. I mean, most of these, most of the time, are invisible. You can't see the pain. You can't see the fatigue. You can't see all of the other symptoms that are going on underneath the surface, And that sort of brings us, uh, let me me circle back to my story for a second. So, you know, in college, toward the end of my sophomore year, uh, actually toward the middle of my sophomore year, around the holiday time, I started itching all the time. And I had these fleeting, intense pains that felt like electric shock. And uh, I suddenly started feeling fatigued and foggy. And I had this reduced labile and negative affect okay so my emotions were were just weird And so I went to the physician and he sent me to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with depression and I thought that was a little weird because I'm a naturally optimistic energetic sort of guy and there was no obvious triggering event and You know, then again, depression runs in my family, so I, you know, I was a kid. I was 19 years old. I I went with it. I was just turned 20. So they put me on some drugs, and none of the drugs worked, and they tried a bunch of different drugs, and so treatment-resistant was added to my diagnosis, and I really didn't know enough to object, and this came and went over the years, and it came back pretty fierce in the late 90s. And then it disappeared. And then in 2002, my symptoms changed. And I started getting numbness. I mean, like my limbs would disappear. So what does all this have to do with you don't look sick? Well, because my condition is largely invisible and others don't see the constant pain or fatigue and they don't see my little lightning-fast calculations that I'm always making to compensate in one way or another for something that's going wrong... As a young guy, I was dismissed in the system, but now I'm an overeducated white male in my middle years, and professionals tend to take what I have to say seriously, and I have a generally recognized diagnosis. Now, they, you know, then I went in with those symptoms, and they were like, oh, we got to take this seriously, and, you know, within a few months, they figured out, oh, it's multiple sclerosis. So, because I have a generally recognized diagnosis, now people don't know what multiple sclerosis is, but they've heard of it, and they know it's serious, kind of scary, and they're really glad they don't have it. So, they're incredulous. You know, they say, oh, wow, you don't look sick, but after that initial reaction, they tend to believe me. And they usually add, oh, you're doing really well with it. Gee, thanks. And then they tell me about somebody that they knew or a friend of a friend or something who had a really disastrous course. And there's no guarantee mine's not going to have that too. Just not yet. So this is one of those little facts about life with a largely invisible illness that never really bothered me until I started speaking with many others and listening to their experiences. And... When you hear the stories, especially, you know, as I mentioned before, of women and people of color and people from working class background, then they tend to be taken less seriously by the medical community and by the people around them. So medical personnel also fall victim to this cognitive bias, and the result is that they fail in their diagnoses. So, while it hadn't bothered me, I would just laugh it off, others aren't so fortunate in their misfortune, and this becomes, this issue of belief becomes a real problem. And there are a lot of awful consequences hiding behind this seemingly innocuous statement. So, after the break, I want us to explore, why do people say this? and we're gonna find there's a lot more going on here than you think. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump, and you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Just jump.life.
0: It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.
1: And we're back. And we're asking why do others not understand when we disclose this health condition that we're living with? Well, there are a few reasons here. One is the word sick means a lot of different things. And for most people, especially growing up as we're setting the baselines for the way we each see the world, our earliest experiences, the sick role is one thing and you get say an infection you know, a flu or a cold or something like that, something that's transient, something that's acute, maybe you get injured, you sprain an ankle or or break an arm or something like that, and you feel bad, you groan about it, you laze around, you take a pill, everybody cuts you a break because you're sick, but they know that you're trying to get better, and Someday you will feel better, and they'll be sick, and you will cut them a break as well. And that's the sick role. Every culture has their version of the sick role, and they're pretty similar, but they're all evolved within the culture to handle those acute sick instances. So everybody has experiences, say, of when they felt really tired because they were sick or they've had pain when they've been sick and they know how they've reacted it's completely laid them low they've they've just gotten completely drawn into themselves and precious about the whole thing and they can't parse the connection in their own minds between their experience when having a flu or a cold or, or breaking a limb or whatever it was, completely shut their lives down because they were sick for a few days, and then they went back to normal. And that experience doesn't translate to living with chronic pain or chronic fatigue or chronic any of these other symptoms that we live with because we know there's no other side. And we've got to figure out a way to cobble together a life in the face of these things. We can't afford to just roll up into a ball and feel precious about ourselves for a little while. Our standards are different. And so when we say sick, all of the associations that come up in their mind are different. And they don't Get it. Everything they know is from acute sickness. So they think you don't look sick is a compliment because their idea of sick, their experience of sick, is when they were looking awful and feeling puny and moaning about everything, and you're not doing any of those things. And that also means they don't understand how you can't afford to act that way. So that's a big disconnect that we're dealing with because the sick role in our culture is very different than what we have to live with chronic illness. And I really wish that we had completely different words for these things because it it might help. We'd we'd figure out a way to screw it up anyway. Uh, It might. Uh, At least people would understand that these are two totally different phenomena that we're dealing with. Another thing that they don't understand is that because they're associating sick with, with this very particular kind of experience, or, in their own mind, external indicators of being sick. So, if we have nothing obvious or we're not using an assistive device, then they don't have any external visual cues to hang this sickness on. We also are pretty confusing because at one level, everyone understands that all the time we're engaging in something called presentation of self, okay? So, we are each putting forth a vision of ourselves that we want other people to encounter and consume, right? And you know you dress differently for different occasions and so forth and so on. And this is what's called front stage behavior, because we are out on a stage in public being a particular version of us. And it's it's not false. It's just the limited set of who we are that we're trying to portray at that particular time. And everyone's putting on a show. And when you live with a chronic illness, you become really, really good at putting on that front stage show. And most people don't get to go backstage with you in your home and understand how much effort and work it takes to put together that front stage show and how much on the other side it takes for you to recuperate from doing that so they don't they don't get that they don't see that it's that disconnect because we know that we have to put this life together with what we've got and we can sit around feeling sorry for ourselves, and sometimes we do, and that's okay, because sometimes we, we need that. But most of the time we can't, because there's life to be lived, and we still have hopes and dreams and, and goals, and, and we're still striving for those things just like everyone else. There's also another cognitive bias going on. You know, we have this thing called a halo effect. So if we if we see someone that's accomplished in a particular area, we tend to think that they're accomplished or pretty good in other areas as well. There's there's another public discussion going on right now about athletes and, uh, you know, should they be role models for others? Well, it's like, you know, on the one hand, no, of course not. They're just doing their job. But on the other hand, humans had this halo effect. And when somebody is exceptional in one way, we tend to think that they're exceptional in the other. So we tend to think, you know, we we're, somehow we're surprised when a business leader or an athlete or an actor somehow turns up to be morally deficient in some area. No, they're just people. But we also have this reverse of that halo effect sometimes it's called a reverse halo effect or sometimes called a horns effect and and we've got this presumption of when we see someone with a negative characteristic we tend to assume that everything about them is negative so if you know and it and it's and it's just as silly and short-sighted as the halo effect but when we tell someone oh we've got a medical condition. Well, that's a great big negative that you've just shared about yourself. And now there's this cognitive dissonance going on in the other person and they're trying to figure out how this fits. And it's like, no, it's just I'm, I'm a normal person and I've got good stuff and bad stuff and I just happen to have a medical condition that's not going away. But that's not how we think about it. So we're always going through what's called this attribution process, right? We're always trying to figure out why someone is doing what they're doing. And it's called attribution. And we make two kinds of attributions. We make state attributions and trait attributions. So a state attribution is... Relatively more rare that we when we make it because we've got to know something about someone to begin with. So if I know you're a, a generally happy-go-lucky person and on a particular day I see you and you're all grumpy and out of sorts, I will probably make a state attribution. So in other words, I'm not saying in my mind that you're a grumpy, foul-tempered person. I'm saying you probably are having a bad day. So that's a, a an external state attribution. Trait attributions are much more easy for us to make. We just say, oh, they're that kind of person. They're that type of person. And so, when other people see our behaviors, there are other trait attributions that are more salient, they're more obvious, that are more easily available in our minds than sick because we naturally presume health. For other people because we think that's normal unless we have that external indicator that's showing us oh he's in a wheelchair she's using a walker you know whatever it is uh, and then we say oh they're sick when they get dumped in that category but everyone else by default tends to get dumped into the healthy category but sick we've already talked about is more cognitively difficult for us to deal with so we're more likely to make an attribution that somebody is stupid or lazy, or selfish, or shifty, or mean, and those of us with the invisible illnesses suffer from these unspoken attributions. There're probably all kinds of people running around thinking that I'm flaky, and no, I'm—I really try not to be. I really try not to be lazy, not stupid on many days. So. Once people make those other attributions about us, then when they find out the truth of a chronic health condition, that can be really surprising and it's really difficult for them to process. Because sickness makes people uncomfortable. And a statement of this sort, when someone just kind of blurts out, You don't look sick, that's often involuntary. They didn't even think about that. They didn't even filter that. And the stronger they deny your being sick, the more fearful and uncertain they probably are. They're probably reacting to their own internal discomfort with sickness. And they are also less likely to acknowledge it at that point. So, on the other side of this break, we're going to talk about our coping mechanisms and how that plays into this. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff that we can do to help other people understand what's really going on. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life.
0: It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share,
1: and subscribe. And we're back and we're talking about coping and understanding and and why other people don't see the harm in this you-don't-look-sick know, statement and why for some of us is a really frustrating statement to be faced with again. And there is this conundrum. The better we cope, the less they understand. They don't get that we don't want to live like we're sick, so we do everything we can not to when we can. They don't understand that we simply avoid putting ourselves in potentially difficult situations. So we know, oh, if I'm going to go out tonight, then for me, my symptoms get worse toward the end of the day because I, I'm closer and closer to exhaustion and so late at night, there's, there's this saying in the multiple sclerosis community, I'm not drunk, I have MS. And, and it relates to how many of us can walk around in the world fine, but when we get really tired, we start bobbing and weaving. And, you know, late at the evening, I may be using a wall to hold myself up. If I didn't, you know, occasionally I will bring a cane, but I don't just usually. And and I plan to pay attention to those early signals so that I can pull out of an event or an engagement early enough that I can get home before other people even notice that this is what's going on. You know, we've learned that there are warning signs that come before things start really taking a nosedive. And that's one of the ways that that our perspective changes as we live with our condition for years and decades so early on i would i would when my ms would get worse i would find myself caught by surprise now that's pretty rare and so like most of us i've learned that there are warning signs we've learned that there are little tricks that allow us to compensate. So I know that if I'm going to be out on a hot summer's day, I'm going to scout out where the shady parts are beforehand if I can. I'll probably bring a little collapsible stool with me so that I know that there's some place to sit when I my legs go out on me, because that might happen. And that always brings up some... some weirdness too because, you know, culturally I look like a fit adult male. But sometimes my legs don't work and I really need to sit down. And if we're in a place where there's not a lot of seating, then I'm 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 stuck in this conundrum. Do I go ahead and, and take a seat and have people look at me like, why is that guy sitting down and not given the seat to that woman? or someone who looks older than he is, or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, dude, my legs aren't working right now. I've got to sit and let them recover. You know, I try to avoid being in those circumstances. And I try to have all these little tricks that allow me to compensate. I never turn down the opportunity to visit a restroom because I know that I'm going to need it. And we've also got lots of ready excuses so that we don't have to discuss our illness. We can blame whatever went wrong on a dozen different other things and deflect from the effects of our condition. And so the better we cope, the less they understand. And there are consequences of this misunderstanding. We get misdiagnoses, as we've discussed. We get misunderstandings. We get misattributions. And so we have to help other people understand what's going on here. And I know that's really frustrating and it's exhausting because you know we we don't feel like we have the obligation to educate everybody else on what's going on, but you know in truth sometimes it's going to make our lives easier if we can help them understand better. And sometimes, you know, we can just smile and nod and move on and and not have to worry about it. So you have to pick your occasions for education, but we do need to help other people understand. And and in the popular consciousness, okay, so in the popular consciousness, maybe the first conceptual tool that allowed people to understand this is called the spoon theory. And this really resonates with a lot of people. And it's just the idea that you've got a handful of spoons every morning, and every time you do something, you've got to pay a spoon. And and with a chronic illness, we've got fewer spoons than other people, and so sometimes devotees of this theory call themselves "spoonies." <laughs> it's true. I mean, search the "spoonie" hashtag, and it's all over the place. So, on on the one hand, that's really cool because it's a very simple way of helping people understand that we are limited in some way, and so. That's good, but in the next few minutes, I want to help you take another step in your understanding, because this Spoonies theory, you know, this is something that, that you know, it's, it's just a resource theory, okay? So, and, and as social and behavioral sciences and, and in the biomedical sciences, we've been doing resource theories for decades, and spoons aren't exactly an enlightening uh, medium of exchange, so, so let me give you a different metaphor. So I was, I was trained as an economist before I became a social psychologist. I was in my first year of my doctorate in econ before I switched. So another way of looking at that is thinking, okay, so we each have a bank account with an overdraft function. And you know with an overdraft function, uh, you can pay more than what's in your account at this moment. So you can take your balance below zero on your account. And if you do, they're going to slap an extra charge on you, but you're still going to be able to make the purchase that you want to make. So imagine that all of us have an energy and effort bank account with overdraft. Okay? And every night from your investments, you get a certain amount of money put in your account. Say a young person gets $1,200 the next morning. They got lots of energy and they can do lots of things and they're running around and, and it's not a big deal. And maybe healthy adults are, are a little less energetic and maybe they get $1,000 a day. And you can spend it on whatever you want. You know, it's going to take hey, this something, maybe a $50 activity or a $100 activity or something really intensive and it's an $800 activity. And that's most of what you're going to do for the day. With chronic illness, maybe I have $500 in my account that day. Now, if I want to go with my friends, my healthy friends, and do an $800 activity today, I can do that, but my account's going to go into overdraft. And what that means is, medically, I'm going from tired to fatigued. And I'll refer you back to that previous episode on awake, tired, fatigued, and exhausted. So what that means is, it's not just going to cost me $800. Maybe my account has a really draconian fee on the overdraft. And they're going to charge me an extra 100 bucks. So what's going to happen is, I'm getting $500 every night put into my fresh account, right? You're getting 1000 put into your account. We do an $800 activity. You got $200 left. I'm at negative 300. Plus, I just got smacked with another $100 fee. So now I'm $400 in the hole. And I'm only going to get $500 in my account the next day. So I've got 100 bucks left. That's it. And you're going to start tomorrow with a fresh 1000. This is what's going on. Everything we do costs us some resources. It costs us time and energy and, you know, whatever else effort and everything else that we're doing. And depending on your health status, you have a bigger account or less. And we can still go into now, you know, if I go if I go $300 in the hole on my account and I get another overdraft fee on that, and that's $400 in the hole, and I try to do something else. Now I've gone from medical fatigue to exhaustion because chances are uh, they're going to bounce my next charge because I'm already 400 in the hole. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about beginning of the day, awake, we got $1,000, $1,200 in our account, I'm starting the day at 500 in my account, and that's not even fully awake. I'm tired to begin the day. And something that costs you, I will not say 100 bucks, but you still got 200 left over. You're, you're, you're going to be fine. You're a little tired by the end of the day, but you're going to rest well and you're going to recoup, and the next day you're going to start with 1,000 again. I'm going to overdraw my account. I'm going to go all the way down. I'm going to have to pay even more. I'm starting the next day at $100. i am already on the verge of fatigue the next day. I'm going to have to rest up that day and barely do anything. And then maybe the day after that or the day after that, I'll be back to my full $500, which is still not nearly where your 1000 or 1200 is. And, you know, we can extend this analogy in a lot of different ways, but but my point here is you've got to think with invisible illnesses, you've got to think in terms of resources. And if you don't live with a chronic health condition, you don't think about resources. Just like if you're wealthy monetarily, you don't think about your purchases. You don't care. It's It's, it's like play money for you because you don't have to budget. Same thing is true with any other resource. If we're crunched on time, time becomes really valuable and we have to really plan how we're spending it. If we're crunched on energy, well, energy becomes a scarce resource. Energy not being a scarce resource is a luxury that healthy people don't even understand that they have. Because they've never had to think about it. Use this resource analogy to help people understand. Have them sit down and and listen to this with you and then have a conversation about this to help them understand that, yeah, they're spending resources all the time, but they've got enough to burn and they don't care. I lived my life that way for a long time too. But when you are fatigued, when you're exhausted, when your body is always fighting something— When you're having to work harder, those calculations change. So on the other side, we will talk a bit about what we can do to help bridge this gap in understanding about why we are sick, but we don't look it. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. We didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness, but there's a better way. So I choose to just jump and you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Just life.
0: It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like,
1: share, and subscribe. And here we are again trying to figure out some practical takeaways from all this so that we can help one another understand each other better and function better together. The first thing that I want to to emphasize here is we're not faking or malingering. And that's really important. You know, the, the actual, there are studies in, involved, and the actual percentage of people in the real world that try to fake a chronic illness is really small. Really small. Because most people don't get this because the only thing they've ever tried to fake was like a day to get off work or school or something like that. And then they go right back to their normal life. That is way different than trying to fake a chronic health condition. Because what we have to go through living with a chronic health condition, especially if it's invisible to other people and we've got to explain it all the time, is just mind-numbing. It is so much more complicated. And nobody wants to live that way. So the actual incidence of faking or malingering in the real world is really small. Second thing that I want to point out here is that Again, overwhelmingly, most of us are not looking for attention or pity. We don't want it any more than you do. We want to just be normal people and get on with our lives and do our things and not have our health conditions get in the way. If we're at a point where we have to draw attention to it, then we feel like we need a little help or consideration at that point. And under no circumstances do we want your pity. And I'm going to go ahead and speak for everyone there. We we, we, we just don't want it. And, you know, the corollary to that is we're also not here to inspire you. <laughs> and that's that's going to be an episode sometime here. <laughs> we just want to be seen. We want to be seen. We want to be accepted. We want you to understand that... We're going through some pretty awful stuff here inside that we're keeping from you most of the time, and most of the time we're going to knuckle up and and we're going to figure out a way to get everything done that we possibly can. But occasionally, and this is true of every human, sometimes we need a little bit of additional support or consideration. And even if you don't live with a chronic condition, you've been there too. You know, me personally, I just want to be treated like one of the guys. But realistically, I also sometimes need a little bit of that extra consideration. And trust me, if I'm to the point where I have to mention that, it bothers me more than I can express to you. It does. And, and I can speak to almost everybody who is in that circumstance as well. Almost all of us. We feel that way too. Nobody wants to be a burden. Everybody wants to give and to help and contribute. So there are some real consequences to us not being believed. And again, I'm going to emphasize that those consequences are not equally shared. These consequences disproportionately fall on women, on people of color, on people from lower socioeconomic statuses on people who already have more than they should have to deal with in our system. But, as we noticed, you know, early on in my life, when I was younger, we can live with misdiagnoses, and that's really common with invisible illnesses. A lot of us go through several different diagnoses before they finally figure on one that seems to work. And what that means is, Many of us are living with incorrect medical treatments or no medical treatments. And that's a really significant consequence. When we're not believed, it has real consequences for our work and professional lives. If our bosses don't believe us, they can soon be our former bosses. It breaks personal relationships. You know, if the people closest to you And this is a whole nother conversation. Trust me, I I have all the compassion in the world for this because I've lived this. I've been there. When the people closest to you say, you know, we're tired of this. We We just can't do this any longer. They think that you're not trying as hard as you can because they're making those misattributions and things like that. It breaks relationships that we care about. And it really does a number on our self-esteem and our identity. When you are opening yourself up, when you are bearing yourself with this really awful thing that, that you have to live with, and other people are not seeing that, they're not acknowledging that, they're not validating that, that's crushing. And it's a challenge because most of the common symptoms that we're dealing with, with these chronic invisible illnesses, the things that we're dealing with that we experience day-to-day are often some form of pain and some form of fatigue. And then, idiosyncratic to each of our diagnoses, there are lots of little things or big things that we must compensate for in ways that don't require externally visible assistive devices But we're still doing some kind of compensation inside, right? We're still doing extra work to get to the same point that you're getting to without all that extra effort. So we, with invisible illnesses, one of the things that you don't see is that we must think and plan for all the things that you take for granted. I have to plan opportunities to be spontaneous. Truly. I know that, you know, if I want to go out and jump on on certain days during the week, I'm already looking at what the weather's going to be like, and I know that some days the weather's going to be really sketchy, but if there's a break in the clouds, I've got to be up spontaneously to get out there and do it, because Mother Nature's not going to cooperate with me on this. She don't care. (laughs) She is a honey badger. And so we must do that. And we must also, going back to that, you know, bank account with overdraft analogy, we must account for recovery on the other side as well. So you're doing your thing, and then you're going to go on and do your next thing. We're going to do the same thing with you, and then we're going to hit pause in our lives to try to recoup fundamentally with an invisible illness, and, you know, we talked about all those misattributions and the misunderstandings that are related to all those cognitive biases that, that we have, it comes right down to, I'm still here. All of us with invisible illnesses, we're still here. We're still trying. This is the only life we've got. And we've got no choice but to keep trying through all this. And if those of you around us can just understand that one fact, that would go a long way to better understanding and better communication because this is what we got, man. If you are living with someone in your life who has a chronic invisible condition and you don't, imagine for a second, just really imagine, close your eyes and imagine when you've been in pain. And it sucks, didn't it? But what did you know in that instant? You knew that the pain was going to be fleeting. You knew that there was going to be another side in a few minutes or hours or days or a week or two, and that you were going to go back to a life that didn't have that kind of pain. Now, how did you react? when you were in that kind of pain. You probably shut down. Same thing with fatigue. Remember when you were really tired. Now, take how tired you were and multiply it by 10 or 100. And what did you do? You pretty much shut down your life because you knew that you could rest a little bit and you would be better. In a day or two, you'd be back to normal and and there would be another side. Now, really, really be honest with yourself and ask yourself, in those circumstances, how would you have reacted if you knew there was no other side? You would do what we're doing. You would start all of the Tips and tricks and techniques and strategies and tactics that we're using to get the most from life that we possibly can. So it's not confusing. It's only confusing if you are comparing us to your baseline cultural stereotype of sick, the sick role. Well, we don't fit that role. So be aware of those sick role stereotypes. Be aware of your attribution process, right? Because all we can see is what people are doing. But we're always trying to make those predictions in the back of our mind about why people are doing what they're doing. Ask someone if somebody is is living with a chronic illness, if they're living with an invisible illness that you can't see from the outside, Well, you should probably take that seriously and think about the other attributions that make sense. We have to really listen to one another and we have to really take to heart, you know, there's this this trite cultural truism that we should always be kind because we never know the battles that others are fighting. And that's one of those things that's a truism because it's true. A little kindness, a little consideration, a little effort at understanding, a little effort to see and be seen honestly and authentically goes a long way. So, I hope you all go forth and you really take the opportunity to see one another and to acknowledge. And we're all trying we're all fighting our battles. We're all doing the best we can. Be well, do well, and do good.
0: If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co.